0: That's that. Okay, we uh, are in week three of the series of I'm Okay and Jesus, and we started with, with I'm and then okay, and this week is, is in, and next week will be Jesus, and then we will be transitioning into a really fun series I'm really looking forward to of just cultural narratives. What is culture telling us? Um, we, we are in the world uh, for most of our time. And, and outside of these walls or outside of our small groups, outside of reading our own Bible and praying that we are inundated with, with culture. And what is it that they're saying? That happiness is something that we should be uh, pursuing. That money or whatever, is that's, this is the end to all. Or politics. Politics are going to fix this country if we can just get our act together. Or intolerance or tolerance. So they are going to be some really heavy sermons, but I'm really looking forward to the opportunity that we have to jump into that. But... Right now, we are in the gospel, and just that simple phrase of, I'm okay in Jesus, and that's really what the gospel means, that when Satan attacks, that when people accuse me, when they call me a hypocrite, that I know that I can look at what Christ has done for me, and I can say, I'm, I'm okay because I'm in Jesus. So that's, that's where, where we're at. Um, yesterday, I was trimming a tree. I've never done that before. I had to go buy a saw and that kind of thing. And and I have a lot of tools. I have power tools, though, but I didn't have like a hand saw that I could, you know, get up on the roof and and cut these trees with this big oak tree that hangs over our our roof. and, And it was really bad. It was my first time up on the roof. And, and if you know anything about the oak trees this year, they dropped a billion acorns. Um, any haters of acorns out there with me this year? Okay, maybe not. Uh, it was bad. I guess this year was just an epidemic of acorns, so they're all in my gutters and all that. And so I crawled up there with my um, my future brother-in-law. Uh, he's engaged to one of my wife's sisters. And uh, it's that's the fun thing about... Um, future brother in laws is they're kind of required to just help when you ask. Like they don't they don't have a choice. <laughs> ah, it's great. So hey Rick, come on over and help me cut my tree down. Um, so and he did and he was happy to do it. And and while we were doing it, I realized, oh this is my first time really ever trimming a tree, but it was so bad that the limbs were actually like rubbing on the roof, right? So when I'm laying in bed at night and there was like a, a gale force wind, it was kind of like the movie Signs and the aliens start breaking into the ceiling. And I'm like leaning over my wife like, they're in the house, They're in the house, right? They're they're right above us right now, and it was terrifying. So I had to cut down these limbs, and it looks great. It's working now. There's no trees rubbing on the the roof, and there's no acorns up there, and and that was a great thing. Um, But as I was up there, just this whole idea of trimming a tree and cutting off dead branches and and, and these huge branches that are bearing its fruit, these acorns of, of, I mean, hundreds, and I'm not exaggerating, probably if not close to a million acorns are in my front lawn, and i'm not exaggerating, there's a lot of acorns uh, and so it was as I was looking at this this fruit bearing tree, not fruit, but you know what I mean it it's seeds uh it, it It reminded me of this passage that we're going to be digging into tonight and of looking at what does it mean to abide in Christ, that he is the vine, and we're the branches, and so that's what we're going to be spending our time at and tonight of what does it mean to be in union. With Christ. So two weeks ago, we looked at I am made in the image of God. What is it my condition, my human condition of being fallen, of being a- away from the creator, of choosing myself and my sin over him? And then he provides a way of salvation to last week, looking at I'm okay. I'm okay because of what Christ did. I'm, he justifies me. He adopts me as his own. And someday we're going to be glorified. And this week looking at in, and I'm in union with Christ. I'm in union with Jesus. So, uh, what is union? And so, I want to look at what, what does union mean. Just read some definitions from some old dead guys uh, and look at some different things and then transition to okay, so what does this mean then to, to us? What's the point? And then we're going to just take our time and walk through John chapter 15. So, let's just read a couple quotes here of well, what, is, what does union mean? Union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. It is not simply a phrase of the application of redemption, which is last last week, that's what we looked at, the, uh, the redemption, right? What is this? The story of redemption in our lives. This, this aspect, union with Christ, is not just one little thing. It underlines every aspect of redemption. So you can re-listen to the sermon from last week. Don't, because I... Cried a lot, and that one is kind of embarrassing. (laughs) All right, so you can re-listen to it, and everything about it, though, you can just say, oh, yeah, this whole idea of union with Christ is actually can be applied to that as well. Everything, every aspect of it. Another quote here, Union with Christ may be defined as that intimate, vital, and spiritual union between Christ and his people, in virtue of which he is the source of their life and strength. Of their blessedness and salvation. And as we look at the analogy that we're gonna be seeing in John chapter 15, we see that He is our nourishment. He is the source of life and strength and blessedness and salvation. That's what union with Christ means. And so looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone away. The new is here. There's something incredibly transformative of being out of Christ and being in Christ. Uh, this morning we have a we have a staff meeting every, every morning on, on Sundays, and, and I was downtown and, and Pastor Steve preached this. And we were in the meeting, and, and Steve was like, Man, I got I got so much content. I gotta, I have to cut, 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 and cut all this stuff out. And 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 Pastor Corr and other pastors, he just says, in. Like you had to cut out stuff from in, right? So that was kind of, the, kind of the joke, but that's really the whole idea. I'm either in Christ or I'm out of Christ, but being in Christ, something radical happens. And one last quote here from, from John Calvin says, we must now examine this question. How do we receive those benefits which the Father bestowed on his only begotten Son, not for Christ's own private use, but that he might enrich poor and needy men? First, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. That is what union with Christ is. So what does it mean? Um, I do want to give a quick word on parables. Jesus spoke in parables a lot. And other apostles and, and other d- disciples spoke in parables. And there's a, there's a reason. There's a lot here. We could, we could unpack this. But why did Jesus tell stories? There is something about reading a good story or watching a good movie or just hearing someone speak in story that just sucks us right in as human beings. And, and God, Jesus Christ, is the greatest storyteller. I mean, the story of redemption and from Genesis to Revelation is the greatest story that could ever be told. And we see that the ultimate storyteller tells these stories. Why? Because if he just flat out tells people what he's saying, they would all would just run away, freak out. This doesn't make any sense. That can't be what it means. Um, so, for example, there was a—you may not be familiar with this story. This is, man, thousand, thousand plus years ago when the, when the Vikings uh, were, were traveling over from Scandinavia over to England. Um, when they were first attacking, which was a very difficult thing to do because of the, of the cliffs and the walls, and no one had ever really successfully infiltrated this island before from outside. And, and they were not having any success uh, either uh, as they would attack and try to pillage and, and go back. They ended up saying, maybe we can climb up these steep cliffs. And so they climb up these steep cliffs, and what did they encounter? They encountered these rams, these, uh, these mountain goats. Right? And, and these rams that were on the cliffs... Uh, had never encountered uh, Vikings before, never encountered human beings before. So what do they do? Every Viking they saw, they just attacked them. They just headbutt them off the cliff and just destroyed them. All right, now that's a parable. That was a parable of how badly the Vikings got destroyed last week by the rams. Now, if I would have come out and said that, Vikings are bad, the rams are better, right? Some of you would have been like, I'm out of here. I'm leaving. This pastor, he doesn't know what he's talking about, right? And you would have walked out. And that's what Jesus does. He says some things that can be offensive, but he does it in story form. Because what do you want to do? You want to hear the rest of this? That's not a true story, by the way. That's not a, that was, it's not, don't, 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 uh, you know, fact check me on that. that. That maybe it happened, but I don't think it did. I made it up this afternoon. Um, that's why, okay? So I'm going to read a parable, and Jesus is going to tell this story, and what exactly is he going to get at? And, and, when I first was looking at union in Christ, this was a passage that just immediately jumped off the page to me, that I, I want to study this passage, I want to read it, and then I got hooked on some stuff. Uh, I, I want to dig into this maybe more than just talking about union with Christ, but what does it mean to be in Christ, and can I be out of Christ? So I want to read this passage, and I'm not gonna I'm going to read through it now, and then we'll go back and, and dissect it little by little. So this is John chapter 15, 1 through 17. This will be in your handout, uh, but it'll it'll be up here on, on the screen as well. Jesus says this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. And he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. And while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me or abide in me, some translations say, as I also remain or abide in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers, and such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is, my, is for to my Father's glory, that you may bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for their friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. This is the passage I want to dig in, and we're going to see that verses 9 through 17 really uh, dig in deeper and further than what he says in, in verses 1 through 8. So I want to really dig into what in the world is he saying? What is this parable? What is he teaching? What is the, the purpose behind it? And what does it mean then to abide, to remain in Christ? Um, we're going to be looking at uh, five five takeaways, something we can see in this. And this was this is the joy I have as your pastor, is I get to do a lot of reading. <laughs> uh, that when you're out, uh, out working, uh, I'm in a coffee shop reading and learning words that I don't know the meaning to, which is uh, fantastic. It's actually quite embarrassing because it happens a lot. Um, but I got to read an entire book by a guy named D.A. Carson, Don Carson. He's a professor and pastor and and, and he writes an entire book on this chapter, okay? So I'm not just going to read Carson, um, but uh, there are some really, really good insights. And so there are five things that he kind of points out that I tried to put into um, my language, uh, but then I will quote him when we get into these, these points. And so um, anyway, so uh, let's, let's look at this. And so the, the first thing, this isn't one of the takeaways, but there's going to be a connection, there's going to be a connection that we just read between the relationship between the believer, those who are in Christ, and then the relationship of Christ and the Father. So the believer in Christ and then the relationship of Christ and the Father. There's, there's some huge similarities there. So I just want to point those out from this passage. The first one here says, Jesus is the object of the Father's love, the same way believers are the object of the Savior's love. He says it right here in this passage. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Carson says this. For Jesus to say, as the Father loved me, so I have loved you, prompts us to reflect and marvel at the thought that believers enjoy something of the intimacy with Jesus that Jesus enjoys with the Father. The Father is the gardener who cherishes the vine, and the vine cherishes the branches. Not that the gardener has no regard for the branches and focuses all attention exclusively on the vine, but the branches have no place in the garden and in the gardener's affection unless they are nurtured by the vine. It is in this sense that the Son is the mediator of the Father's love. Now, what is this not saying? (laughs) Right, this is not saying that God doesn't love you. I actually had a pretty uh, long conversation the other day. There was a student who is studying the Trinity and wanted to just call some different denominations and different pastors and, and why is it that we don't you know what is my view on the Trinity? Why don't we teach it as, as often as maybe we should? And, and my, my conclusion was we, we sing about it. right? That we, the catechisms that we sing in these old, unbelievably theologically rich uh, hymns is, is amazing. But I think, we're, at least for me, I'm, I'm Baptist, okay. And if you grew up Baptist, we talk about the Father a lot. We talk about Jesus a whole lot. But you had better not talk about that Holy Spirit person, right? He's freaky, right? That's kind of how how I grew up, right? It was you don't touch the power, right? Because I don't know how to handle the power, right? And so that was that was kind of. Well, so so in my conversation with this student was. I think, yes, of course, we we have this forgotten God, right? Francis Chan wrote a book on that, right? We we, kind of forget about the Holy Spirit. But another really bad view of the Trinity is separating Jesus Christ and God the Father so much that we think God is just this vindictive jerk sitting on his throne saying, glorify me, feed me, worship me. And then Jesus is like, hey, Dad, I got this. I'll love them for you. And that's a horrible position to take. So I wanna read some some verses about God loving us even by the same author in John and by his own son. God so loved the world. What did he do? He gives his one and his only son and whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. God loves us. And we cannot forget that. Another verse here, Romans chapter, I don't know, it didn't go on there. Romans chapter 8. This is Romans chapter 8, verse 32. It says this, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? As the heavenly Father lavishes upon us grace and mercy that we do not deserve We don't deserve Jesus. We don't deserve salvation, but it's because of his love. One author, poet, said this, Surely thy sweet and wondrous love shall measure all my days, and as it never shall remove, so neither shall my praise. There's something about the Father's love that should just warm us of who he is and what he has done. And that warmth, that love is reflected in our relationship with Christ. And if I abide in him, if I remain in him, the second point is this. As Jesus remains in his Father's love by means of obedience, so the believer must remain in Jesus' love by means of obedience. And I read that this week. And I was like, man, yeah, yeah. there's something about me that struggled with that phrase that D.A. Carson said. But then as I read the passage, it's what Jesus says. So what's he saying? He says this. Now remain, abide in my love. And if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain In his love. Carson says this. In the context of John chapter 15, Jesus is talking about his love for his disciples, not how they become his disciples, okay? I want to stop there. That's what we talked about last week and the week before, there is nothing, not a thing that you can do to earn the love and favor and merit of God's mercy and salvation. You can't do it. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. You can't boast about it. That this, what we're talking about, is Jesus saying this is his love for those people who are already redeemed, not how they became redeemed. Being a disciple, being an inmate, inmate, being, being a disciple, being an intimate of Jesus entails certain responsibilities for a start, it requires obedience. Only obedience ensures the disciple will remain in Jesus' love. Similarly, in the extended vine metaphor of the preceding verses, no branch can bear fruit unless it remains in the vine. And the branch that does not bear fruit is lopped off and burned. Uh, unless you're me and you just leave the lopped off branches in your front yard until you have time to get to them. Uh, Where there is growth and fruit-bearing by virtue of connection with the vine, there too is life. Where there is neither growth nor fruit-bearing, there is no life. In terms of discipleship, Jesus explains the metaphor by saying, this, this is to my Father's glory that you may bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And so I read this, and as I'm reading Carson, as I'm reading the scriptures, this is what Jesus is saying. The only question I can think of is, so can I lose my salvation? Because it kind of sounds like that. It kind of sounds like if I'm a branch, if I'm in Christ, if I'm off of Christ, but I'm just not doing good enough. I came to faith in Christ by that faith and grace, and now I'm I'm grafted in. I'm in this tree, and and I'm part of it. But man, so if I don't do good enough here, can I wither away and die? And it kind of, it's, it's kind of a freaky thought, right? Maybe you don't, maybe you're not like me, but that's where I went, and that's where we're going. Okay, so that's that's what we're doing. Um, and so the question is, right? Is a branch still part of the tree? If a dead branch is part of the tree, is it still part? You see what I'm saying here, right? Because I know that yesterday when I got up on my roof and I'm cutting down tree branches. I wouldn't have to have gone up there if those branches weren't part of the tree. I know I'm, I'm saying the same thing a million times. You know what I'm saying. There's a similar, similar parable that Jesus shares in Mark chapter four. It's a parable of, of, a, of the sower. I'm just reading, Jesus explains it. Right, He tells this parable and everyone's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And so then he's like, how do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? He says this, the farmer sows the word So, so wait, did they, did they believe? Did they accept it? Are they, are they growing? Are they in Christ there? Are they, are they not? He keeps going, still others, like a seed sown among thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires of other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. It's the same story. Others, though, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop produce fruit. Some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. So what do we do with that? And as I was reading uh, Carson, he introduced me to a word called uh, phenomenon, I can't, phenomenologically, phenomenologically, all right, versus ontologically. All right, what? (laughs) Yeah, that was one I had to look up, okay. Phenomenon. It's an experience. It's something that you can see it's, it's a study of the result, something I can notice versus ontological is the study of essence of being. OK, there's a really big, fancy words. you're going to forget them by the end of the night. that's okay. But I like it. The phenomenon, the phenomenological <laughs> it's kind of fun to say, though is this: is the individual who says, "I look really good. I look like a Christian." I walk like a Christian, I talk like a Christian, I vote like a Christian, I go to church like a Christian, I read a Bible like a Christian, I do all these things just like a Christian. So that when anybody else looks at that person, they go, that's a good Christian. Whereas ontological is the essence, it's the inner being of a person who says, okay, are you just doing this to do it, to look like a, look like a whatever, a Christian, or are you actually in Christ? There's a difference here. We look at the authority of Scripture, and Scripture cannot contradict itself. Okay, so if I read these parables, if I read the teaching of Christ, and then just a few moments later, I can read the words of Jesus himself saying, you can't lose your salvation. Well, now I'm just confused. Well, then, then let's just throw the whole thing out. This doesn't make any sense. Remember, he's speaking a parable here, and we've got to dig in. So I'm going to look at some proof from the same author, from John, from Jesus, who says this, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those that he has given me, but raise them up on that last day. If you remember a year ago, we looked at the the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, that God will cause a true believer, a true branch that's abiding in him to persevere, to continue to get that nourishment that's needed for life, because Jesus says it. He will not lose any of them. For my father's will is that everyone who looks in the sun and believes in him shall have eternal life and I will raise them up at that last day. Again, he says, my sheep listen to my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. That's not a parable. That's the king of kings and the Lord of lords saying, if I own you, I will never let you go. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Carson says this, In short, genuine conversion is not measured by the hasty decision, but by the long-range Fruitfulness. When you look at scripture over and over and over again we see bear fruit, reap the harvest. I'm not a I'm not a farmer, but it takes time for that to happen. It takes effort, it takes work to produce fruit. There are examples and and, 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 and stories and images that we get from scripture of people, yes, making a decision. My story is just like that. Hearing the gospel and saying, yes, I want Jesus, period, and being saved. But then God causes me to persevere. And we see this again from Jesus, John. They went out from us but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. All right, that's that's clear as it gets. They, They looked phenomenologically like a Christian. They acted like it. They walked with us. They talked with us. They gave to the poor. They did all these great things, but they didn't really belong to us because they weren't abiding and remaining in Christ. Carson says this, to perceive these things is also to see how close a person may come to salvation without ever having the root of the matter within him. A person may believe in the sense that he has come uh, through ascent, that he may pass all the tests uh, a discerning church may offer and be baptized. He may become a disciple, a follower of Jesus in the sense that he adheres as far as anyone can see to Jesus' teaching. And he may give his testimony and taste something of new stirrings of holiness because of the company that he is keeping. To all who are limited by the phenomenological, that a person is a Christian, a brother, he is a branch, he is a seed that is sprouting and growing. But if at any point he rejects the truth and remains fruitless or wits, uh, excuse me, wilts before opposition, The biblical writers I have cited concur in this, that he could not possibly have been a true believer in the first place. John 2, 23, 25, Jesus is saying this, makes it clear that a person can in some sense put their trust in Jesus and yet not be a true believer. Judas Iscariot was accepted by the 12 and none suspected his traitorous defection, but the the final verdict is that it would have been better for him never to have been born. They were never actually in Christ. They didn't get the nourishment and therefore they weren't abiding in Christ. That they couldn't say, I'm okay in Jesus. They said, I'm okay in what I'm doing and who I'm with and how I'm acting and how I'm living and not getting their true nourishment from Jesus. But doesn't that sound like law? Doesn't that mean then that I need to do something to to stay here, to, to, to stay good? Let's keep going. As Jesus' supreme joy in this relationship of obedience to the Father, so the Christian's supreme joy lies in his relationship of obedience to the Son. (laughs) That this relationship is not law. We've talked about this. It's not duty. It's not just about following the rules. It's loving Jesus because he satisfies my deepest, most intimate desire because every human being who's ever walked the face of the earth has a God-sized hole in his heart that can only be filled with Christ. And if I abide in him, oh, the joy that we get. I have never met more awful human beings than people who say they're Christians, but they're not living like one. I'm, I'm in Christ, man. I'm miserable. Uh, something's not up here. Because you can't muster up joy. You can't fake joy, right? I can tell a, a, a stupid joke, and you guys can laugh. <laughs> right? You can fake the funniness, that's not an emotion, but you can fake something, right? You can, you can fake other emotions of being angry or mad and, and whatever, you can't fake joy because it comes from inside. John chapter 15, again, says this. I've told you this, that your joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Complete. How can I ever truly, fully be satisfied? Abide remain, be married to Christ. I can't just do it. It's not work. I get to do this now. And finally, nope, not finally, number four. This teaches a full-blown theology of unity and diversity. The body is one but has many members. The vine is one but has many branches. There's something beautiful about diversity in the church in, in every possible way economically, politically, ethnically. It's a beautiful thing, even denominationally. You know, we we are the fourth church that meets in this building. You know what? Well, how come we all just don't like hold hands and sing kumbaya? You wanna know why? Because those three other churches are reaching people that we can't reach, at least that we don't reach. But yet we get to sit under the same roof and worship the same God and the same Jesus Christ. And he said, I will build my church. It's a beautiful thing. He says this, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, and to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command of being in that community and relationship with one another, not just in this room, but even beyond these walls. Number five, the intimacy between believers and Jesus Christ is a fruitful intimacy grounded ultimately Not in our choice, but of Christ. Our choice of Christ, but in Christ's choice of us. That should be the most satisfying thing and joy-filling thing. Because it's not about just, I got to abide, I got to abide. Set set a reminder, every 15 minutes, abide, remain in Jesus. You're going to fail. But when you read this, it's Christ's choice of us. And Jesus says this. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I learned from my father. I have made known to you. You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you so that you may go and bear fruit. How do I bear fruit? Work hard. No, remain in Jesus. Let Jesus do the work. Fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. I don't know if you knew this, but this is why that when we pray, at least culturally in the United States, we end with, and in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Right here. That whatever you ask in the name of the Father, I will give you, right? So that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna ask in Jesus' name. All right, that's, that's okay, that's good. But, you know, just think, about, think about what we're praying for before we just, hey, Jesus' name, amen. Anyways, that has nothing to do with anything. All right, we're moving on here. One one more quote here, Uh, this is the last one here. There is a strong emphasis on divine election in John's gospel, all right? This idea of God the Father through the Son choosing people to be saved. Trying to come to grips with this emphasis, whether here or elsewhere in the canon, three boundary observations eliminate much harmful speculation. Number one, God is absolutely sovereign. according to the scriptures, but his sovereignty never reduces man to the status of a robot or a puppet. Man's choices are significant. They are significant. When we pray that God reacts to human choices, we see that clearly in scripture, but yet we also see that he's sovereign over everything. Number two, man is responsible before God for all that he is and all that he does and has, but his responsibility never makes God contingent, right? God doesn't isn't required to do something because we want him to. Number three, theological errors in this extremely complex area of doctrine can largely be avoided if one restricts oneself to deductions with the biblical authors themselves offer and careful observation of how God's sovereignty and man's responsibility function in the scripture. I choose you, abide in me. Abide in me, remain in me. So then, that leads us to be able to unbelievably, awesomely, proudly proclaim, "I'm okay in Jesus," and I'm not just like, "Yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay in Jesus. He makes me okay." For time's sake, I'm gonna just skip to my last little. Uh, this is an illustration that we use a lot at uh, at Hope of what does it mean? This language of abiding. Of remaining, it's the same language that you can use in a marriage. Um, But when I say, you know, if if I were to say, my wife and I, we we have abided together for the last eight years, right? Uh, Culturally, we don't use that language, but but that would be appropriate based on what the word means. And so, when you fill out a tax form, there's a box that you can check, right? I'm single or I'm married, right? And so, the analogy is that when I stand before Christ, it is as if when I say I am one with Christ. I am married with Christ. I am his bride that he has checked married so that all the stuff that was mine, Jesus now takes. And all the stuff that's Jesus, I now get to take, right? That's, what, that's not what marriage is. That, that sounds bad. I, I didn't mean it like that. But this is a beautiful thing. So we file our status before God as single and God is standing there and he says, be perfect, be holy as I am perfect. And we say, I can't, I can't do it by myself. I can work hard, I can try, I can, I can look like it. Can't do it. Jesus lives under the law, and then when I get married, and now I'm with Christ, and the law is still there, and we re- reread in Galatians chapter four, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. And so now, because of Christ, it's grace, and it's only grace. I can't do something to to earn this, and I've said this a million times, but then I also can't do anything to remain in Christ. I have have to, 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 to live in the power of Christ and abide in him to receive the nourishment from Christ. That's what I must do when it comes to works. Last quote here, during the marriage ceremony when a man and woman stand before the minister, this is something I get to do a lot, and this is fun. This is one of my favorite things to do as a pastor is to, is to do weddings and see these people enter and stand in front of me, and they are single. And then by the time they walk out of there, well, when we sign the actual document, you, know, you get the idea, they're married, like that's it. It's a beautiful thing. That when a man and woman stand before the minister, they are two separate individuals, and at the end of the ceremony, however, they are pronounced husband and wife. They are united, and, they, and the two become one flesh. The property of each individual becomes the property of both, but in our marriage union to Christ, the glorious exchange is far greater, right? We looked at that last week, of what Martin Luther called the great exchange. Our sin and guilt are imputed, are given to Christ. That's what I bring to the relationship. And his perfect law-keeping and suffering are imputed to us. And what is ours becomes his, and what is his becomes ours. Because of the representative union that we share with Christ, the Father no longer looks upon us as sinful, but sees only the righteousness and holiness of Christ. I am okay in Jesus. And why am I okay in Jesus? Because I abide, I remain, I am married to him. And if you say, but how, am I one of those branches? Am I one of the dead ones? Bear fruit, love Jesus. You can't earn it. Remain in him, be in his presence because he is in control. So gospel application and closing. Are you being nourished by the true vine? I mean, the vine. Because I can't nourish you. Your spouse can't nourish you. Your friends can't nourish you. The only way that I can nourish or friends or family can nourish is by sharing what Jesus has already done for you. That's how you're nourished. That's how you remain. The true vine. We're going to sing in a couple minutes that song, Man of Sorrows. Man of Sorrows, what a name! He bore our suffering. He bore all of our pain. I'm okay in Jesus. And finally, are you acting as a tree with one branch? Yesterday, my wife and I went uh, with Henry, our son, to an apple orchard. Uh, it's just a thing you do when you have little kids. You'll 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 learn maybe. Um, and and we, but it was a lot of fun. But there were there were trees that were just you know one or two years old that that just looked like a stem, right? It was a vine and maybe one little branch coming out. You cannot be a one-branch tree. You can't do it. It's completely counter-scriptural to say, I can do this on my own. No, you can't. You need to abide in Christ and be in community with the other branches. And so when we get done with this sermon, not in the sermon, but done with the service, there's gonna be, you know, uh, Nolan's gonna be out in the back and say, man, I'm not in a small group. And all he would say is, why not? And I know there are legitimate reasons to not be in a small group with time and, and travel and job. I get it, I do. But am I, am I doing this with other people? Or am I trying to go about this on my own? Man of sorrows, what a name. Will you bow your head and pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for the opportunity that we have to be here tonight. I thank you for the joy that was set before Christ that he bore our sorrows, he bore our pain for our joy so that we might give glory to the Father, to you. So God, I pray that we, those of us in this room that would say, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm, I'm a believer in Christ, I am a branch, but God, am I bearing fruit? Is there something that I can do? I pray that you would help us to realize the answer is no. No. The only thing that I can do to abide and remain is to continue to get nourishment and the lifeblood from Jesus Christ himself. So God, would you be honored and glorified as we have communion, as we have worship, as we go our separate ways. For it's in Christ's most precious name that we do pray these things. Amen.